Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Mary Harris, WNYC's health editor. For six months, we focused on cancer and how many of us are touched by it. One in two men, one in three women will get this diagnosis. This piece aired on The Leonard Lopate Show. You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. We may be living through a revolution in the way that we treat cancer. Immunotherapy has shown some remarkable gains in treating cancer by harnessing the body's own immune system to fight the disease. And we're joined now by Dr. Jed Walchuk, chief of the Melanoma and Immunotherapeutics Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and one of the leading researchers in the field. Also here is Mary Elizabeth Williams, who went from having metastatic stage 4 cancer to being completely cancer-free after three months in in an immunotherapy treatment trial. She's a senior staff writer at Salon.com, and I'm very pleased to welcome them both to our program today in the latest installment of WNYC's series, Living Cancer. Hello. Welcome to our show. Thank you Thank for you having very much. us. Dr. Walter, can you explain broadly how immunotherapies for cancer work? Is it, It's only certain cancers, I assume. So right now, immunotherapies are being used in a subset of cancers, but the idea is that as we learn more about why some patients with some cancers respond to immunotherapy and others don't, that we might be able to more broadly apply them, either alone or in combination with other therapies, in a broader spectrum of cancers. Don't cancers have a way of hiding from our immune systems? That's entirely true. Um, That's one of the skills that is now recognized as a hallmark of cancer, is being able to to shield the tumor from the immune system. And that is actually one of the reasons why it's taken so many years to devise effective ways to overcome those cloaking mechanisms. And how is the immune system response to cancer triggered in this treatment? In the, the kind of treatment that we've been using most recently, we use antibodies, which are immune proteins, to block critical breaking mechanisms that keep the immune system from acting effectively against the cancer. Um, some of these breaking mechanisms are instigated by the cancer, whereas others are part of the normal check and balance. So the, the cancer tricks the immune system into not going after it? In fact, in some cases it does. Now... Uh, You're using drugs here. This is not just using dead cancer cells. That's correct. These these are medicines um, that are uh, manufactured. Um, They're they're proteins that block these critical uh, proteins that uh, keep the immune system in check. And, in fact, several of these are already approved by the, the FDA for the treatment of melanoma. Does this kind of treatment come with risks? Of course. Um, the, the risks... Uh, I kind of knew the answer to that. It always comes with risks, doesn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, we, we always have to balance the discussion of the possible benefits with risks. And this type of therapy um, has side effects that are unlike what people would normally associate with chemotherapy or other forms of cancer therapy. They represent inflammation of normal body parts, things like um, colitis or inflammation of the intestines or inflammation of the liver, um, which more reminds us of autoimmune disease. Mary, uh, did any of those problems occur during your treatment? No, I was uh, I was very very fortunate. I was uh, one of the first patients in a phase one clinical trial, so I was one of the first people who got a particular combination of two immunotherapy drugs, and I had um I had a not a fun time, but I definitely had a much easier time than some patients, and I had a much 
much, much different experience and much easier experience than people who go through chemo or certainly people who go through interferon. And that's one of the other big things that makes immunotherapy so special and so different is that for many of us, we can live through treatment and not have a deterioration in the quality of our life while we're doing it. Well, chemotherapy, many people know about, but interferon, which is even more powerful, it, it I've been told it's one of the most painful experiences a person can go through, and it isn't always successful. Yes, interferon is, is also an immunotherapy. It's a very potent immune hormone that actually recapitulates many of the symptoms of having the flu. Now, you went through a clinical trial in which there were no placebos. Isn't that rare? No, that's uh, actually not unusual at all. I had to learn that myself. I went into the clinical trial ex experience assuming a lot of things that are simply not true about clinical trials, uh, including the fact that uh, for most of them, and certainly in early trials, what happens is you are getting the treatment, and you are also, um, if necessary, like at any point, you would, if it's not working, you would then go back to the standard of care. This idea that we are just guinea pigs when we enter into trials and we're somehow risking not being treated um, is is really not true. Did and so I was I was treated with two different very for me very effective drugs right from day one. Don't people sign up for them looking for a magic bullet? Uh, I don't. I, well, that's the other thing is I think people think that clinical trials are a last resource and that you have to go into trial when you've exhausted every other possibility. And the other thing about clinical trials that I really am trying to educate myself and other people about is that you can be looking into and exploring clinical trials as a patient um, really on a spectrum of, of places in your own disease. You've written, if you ever really want to feel like you're chemically tempting the fates, I recommend a phase one clinical trial. <laughs> well, that's true, because I was I was getting uh, one of the drugs that I was on had not been tried in humans yet. So it was a little um, it was a little intense. But uh, and for me, I was at I was at stage four and I did have a particular kind of cancer that Where was not. Um, I had melanoma. I had a melanoma that had metastasized into my lungs and soft tissue. I was stage four, which I know Dr. Wolchuk doesn't like to say, uh, especially to people sitting directly opposite him, but has a pretty dire diagnosis, is a pretty um, serious, uh, very life-threatening disease. And, uh, and I, was, I was very fortunate that my, I was with a team of doctors who were able to have a conversation with me very early in the process about clinical trials and about immunotherapy. When you are told you have melanoma, it's almost always uh, a scary moment that the word fatal usually is connected <laughs> to it. How long were you told you might live? Well, my doctors don't like to talk in those kinds of terms, although I have sat with Dr. Wolchuk at panels where he has he has bandied about certain time frames. And, and I know from my own writing and because I'm writing a book about the experience now, um, I mean, generally when you have stage 4 melanoma, the expectation is, is a year or less. The, there was a piece this morning on Morning Edition in which uh, uh, three different responses of doctors were described. One was uh, pretty much not tell the patient anything. The other was tell the patient everything to the point where uh, it's you've laid it out in, in the most scary fashion. And the third is kind of like a pep talk. So I actually re reviewed that um, coming over to the studio today. And I, I think that I kind of come between those different um, approaches, that I, I think that uh, physicians who, quote-unquote, give patients a certain amount of time are committing a fairly enormous uh, act of hubris. 
Um, and I often tell my patients that that's God business. It's not people business. And it doesn't always turn out to be true. Often it's wrong. Um, and uh, if, But I think if patients want to know realistically how do most people do, we can talk about medians, and we need to describe what a median means when, when, when a number is thrown out there. As human beings, we like these numbers. Did you think that Mary was a good candidate for the, for the trial? I, I, I thought Mary Elizabeth was um, a very good candidate for the trial. Um, you know, she fulfilled the eligibility criteria. She was motivated to participate, and she very courageously volunteered to, to be part of this. And Mary, you write about having to go through a number of tests to qualify, not uh, being sure how to ace a CT scan. <laughs> Were you afraid that some feature of your body chemistry would keep you out of the clinical trial? I was. I have a very good friend who is um, who's a medical researcher and who gave me a little inside dope before I started the the trial. and And he told me, uh, if you if you get into this trial, he said this looks very very promising. This combination looks very promising in animal studies. And he said if you get into the trial, do what you can to stay into it because one of the things that happens for patients like me who have very limited options is if we are bounced from the trial, and which unfortunately fortunately happened to a very close friend of mine, um, then it's very difficult to get into another trial. And then you have, um, you have limited your options. So I was, um, I was motivated to do it, but I was, um, I was also lucky. I was, in, I was in otherwise good health. And that's the other thing, you know, when Dr. Wolchuk talks about um, statistics, is what I really respect about the kind of care that I've received is it always came down to, well, how are you doing? And let's look at where you are. And let's not necessarily look at patient populations, but how do you feel? Um, and if something is changing in your in your condition, we'll have a conversation then. But it was never, well, I can look at a, you know, I can look at sheets of paper and say, this is what's going to happen to you. It wasn't predictive. It was about me as a, per- as a person. And I think that's very important in healthcare to do that, to see each patient as an individual. And each cancer is a different story. My guests are Mary Elizabeth Williams, who is a senior staff writer at Salon.com and who went from having metastatic stage 4 cancer to being completely cancer-free after three months in uh, uh, an immunotherapy treatment trial. Also with us is Dr. Jed Walchuk, Chief of the Melanoma and Immunotherapeutic Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, Dr. Walchuk, um, the trial tested two drugs. Uh, Now, why are all these drugs uh, so hard to pronounce? Uh, Ipilimumab? Ipilimumab. And MDX-1106. Why did your team think that these two drugs would work well in tandem? So these are both medicines that get at critical breaking mechanisms that keep the immune system from becoming fully active. And we know that um, both of them had reason to, uh, to be rational choices to treat this disease. And we also knew from laboratory experiments that when used together, they seem to provide more benefit than when used separately. Haven't uh, scientists been trying to develop immunotherapy for years? Why has it been so difficult to come up with uh, a, something that might work? You're correct in that the history of immunotherapy is actually over 100 years old, much of it written on the Upper East Side of Manhattan when a surgeon named William Coley at the forerunner of Memorial Sloan Kettering called the New York Cancer Hospital observed the patients who got 
bacterial infections after surgery seemed to live longer in terms of cancer survival than those who didn't develop infections. Because it had activated their immune systems? Exactly right. And remember, in the late 1890s, nobody knew what the immune system was, but he developed a therapy which essentially consisted of dead bacteria that he injected into tumors. Um, what happened with that? Obviously, we uh, have abandoned that approach. We abandoned that approach, but it, it did enter uh, you know, commercial use in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, actually, Coley's daughter, uh, who was the founder of the Cancer Research Institute, uh, actually uh, interpreted his handwritten records and published them after his death. And I think it took medical researchers about 80 years to understand the mechanism of what was going on underneath the surface. There was an earlier approach uh, to what you're doing that involved injecting the patient with her dead cancer cells and her own dendrites. Um, that sounds like a good idea. It's, it's kind of the same sort of thing we do with dead polio uh, bacilli, isn't it? Yes. So you're referring to something called a dendritic cell vaccine, which is mixing the, the substance that you want to immunize the person against, in this case, dead cancer cells, with, in, these, in this case, immune cells called dendritic cells to make them more interesting to the body's immune system. But that hasn't worked. That by itself is not as effective as we want it to be because of this immune suppressive influence that cancers induce in people's bodies. We need to do something even more potent. Now, this is different than chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, would they be uh, better suited for different kinds of cancers? I think uh, is what you're talking about mostly for cancers like melanoma that haven't responded to chemotherapy and radiation. Well, right now, um, we know that immunotherapy uh, has a proven effectiveness in melanoma. Um, it's showing very promising activity in several tobacco-related cancers, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, head and neck cancer, bladder cancer, and kidney cancer. And most recently, a few months ago, we learned about very significant activity in certain types of lymphoma as well for this approach. So I think we are now being awakened to the idea that immunotherapy can have broad-reaching effects. Isn't uh, Gardasil, which protects against certain forms of cancer associated with HPV, a form of immunotherapy? It absolutely is. Uh, that is a vaccine against HPV, and these virally related cancers are really the lowest hanging fruit for immunotherapy because they're caused by a bona fide pathogen, something that the immune system is designed to recognize. My guests are Dr. Jed Walchuk, uh, the chief of the Melanoma and Immunotherapeutics Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and uh, a successful patient, Mary Elizabeth Williams, who also is a senior staff writer at Salon.com. We will continue our conversation after this. We're back with Dr. Jed Walchuk, Chief of the Melanoma and Immunotherapeutic Service at Memorial Sloan Kenry, Kettering Cancer Center, and uh, one of his patients, Mary Elizabeth Williams, who went from having metastatic stage 4 cancer to becoming completely cancer-free after three months in treatment. She is a senior staff writer at Salon.com. Mary, how quickly did you see the results of the trial? Very quickly. Uh, I I couldn't be sure of what was going on, and I couldn't. I was very uh, skeptical until I actually got my first set of scans three months into the trial. But I had a tumor that was very visible and very large and very uncomfortable on my back. And after my first 
treatment, we could see it diminishing. And I remember I went into Dr. Wolchek's office two weeks into the trial, and I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I think my tumor is smaller. And I showed it to him, and I'll never forget it. He just looked at me, and he said, well, that's neat. <laughs> and um, so it, it, that's the thing about immunotherapy, too, is, is it doesn't work on everyone. It, in fact, doesn't work on a lot of people. What about some but, of the other people in the trial? Uh, well, I'll let Dr. Wolchek speak to that. But what it seems that when it works, it works very quickly. So in the trial that Mary Elizabeth participated in, uh, about 40% of the patients had a major regression of the tumors that were present at the beginning of the study. That means 60% did not. Correct. Um, But some of those 60% had a stabilization um, of of their disease. And we know, actually, that because the immune system is a living organ, um, it can control the disease even if it doesn't make it completely go away. You also mentioned earlier that Mary was in good health. She's fairly young. I assume those all were factors. Especially in a phase one clinical trial, when we don't necessarily know what the side effects are to expect, being young and healthy um, and having the reserve to sustain side effects should they occur are certainly advantageous. Hasn't there been some conjecture that CT scans can have a negative effect as well because they involve radiation and uh, radiation can cause cancer? I think this is a a current topic of conversation of how much radiation uh, CT scans emit and whether that um, presents a risk for other cancers. And it's been a a very helpful dialogue in allowing radiologists and and experts in this area to use techniques that expose patients to the least amount of radiation necessary to get clear images. A caller wanted to know whether stem cell therapy has the potential to treat cancer. So there are uh, techniques now called stem cell transplants, which are very related to what uh, are also known as bone marrow transplants. These are blood-forming stem cells that are being used um, instead of uh, bone marrow cells, Um, and they are, in fact, curative in in some blood cancers. Because the bone marrow treatments have been only partially effective, And and, and they're rather dangerous, aren't they? Um, well, they can be. They're they're safer now than they used to be. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. A breast cancer survivor called and wants to know if immunotherapy works for breast cancer. It's a very timely question from a very informed audience. Um, so there was recently some data presented showing that in some subtypes of breast cancer, that uh, one of the immunotherapies that Mary Elizabeth received, uh, so-called antibody that blocks an immune protein called PD-1, had activity in breast cancer. And so we're now very interested in larger clinical trials to answer that question. Mary Elizabeth, have you essentially signed up to be studied for the rest of your life? Uh, yes, I have. That was actually, I mean, I can, I can opt out at any time, but when I entered into the trial, I signed a contract saying that uh, they could follow up with me for the rest of my life, and I am out of tri- I'm out of my trial now a year and a half, and I just had a, a follow-up conversation with the study a week ago. So, yeah. Well, you signed up for it, but do you also feel a moral obligation? I do. I am, of many things in my life, one of the things that I am most proud of is being part of this study. One of the things that I really am so happy to be a part of is being part of, of, I'm getting all choked up, the literature. Well, you're cancer-free. Of course you're happy. (laughs) And just being part of this story. 
and being able to be followed for what I hope is a very, very long time and being able to have my doctors have conversations with me and I hope be part of something that helps other people who are facing a very grim cancer with a very dire diagnosis and very bad statistics. Um, being part of that, you know, the least I can do is take a few follow-up surveys. I'm happy to. So you're not worried about feeling <laughs> like a lab rat somewhere along the line or like Henrietta Lacks. I am. You know what? I'm now at a point where I'm really happy being a lab rat. It, it's one of the best jobs I ever got. Uh, the Henrietta Lacks story is interesting, but that's also be brought – I'm not going to ask you about the ethics of it, but um, uh, if, if they took a cancer out of one of your patients, could that then be used to treat somebody else in the future? Not necessarily directly, but the knowledge gained from studying that tumor in the laboratory um, can be used to develop therapies for patients in the future. Um, in, in fact, um, one of the, the tumors that Mary Elizabeth um, allowed us to have access to for, for research purposes is something that we're studying to hopefully identify why she responded so well. How uh, involved was your treatment? How many times did you have to go to the hospital? I was in the trial for two years, uh, which is not uh, what someone who is now receiving that kind of treatment would get. Um, I was in treatment. I did, um, I did it every three weeks for several months. And so then they I, poked your arm every three weeks? I got a – they took – and plus because I was in a trial, there was also a lot of – taking of my blood, a lot of taking of my blood, a lot of taking other samples. It was very, it was much more rigorous than someone who was just getting uh, a typical treatment. And then there's a the whole matter of, of dosage, isn't there? Uh, you don't want to give too much and you don't want to give too little. The, uh, the drug may be effective and yet if you administer it wrong, you won't have the effect you want. That's precisely the reason why the trial that Mary Elizabeth participated in was designed, um, to understand what the best doses to use of these two medicines together. And we did, in fact, learn that there was a sweet spot for dosing of these two medicines. Just because this worked for Mary and a few patients with a specific kind of cancer, should we be skeptical um, about or should we be positive about the possibility of it working with a wider range of cancer patients? I think this is a an example of why we should be hopeful about what research can deliver. Um, we, we shouldn't be unrealistic and think that this is going to work for every single person the same way it worked for Mary Elizabeth. This is a very personalized type of situation which Mary Elizabeth alluded to. The, the immune system delivers the ultimate form of personalized medicine. But I just want to say what I what I hope is that, uh, you know, three and a half years ago, I was kind of an extraordinary story. And now what I really am enjoying is feeling that this is going to be a much more typical experience for many more patients. We're talking with Mary Elizabeth Williams and Dr. Jed Walchuk about a new approach to treating some forms of cancer. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Mary Elizabeth, you, you wrote, when I got cancer, I felt like my body had betrayed me on a cellular level. When I started doing immunotherapy and that therapy worked, I felt like my body had saved me. It sounds like there's a huge psychological component to this kind of treatment. It's it's very huge. There are a lot of, of aspects of it that are so different from conventional cancer treatment and so different from the typical experience that cancer patients have. And knowing that I've weaponized my own body and knowing, and we haven't really talked about this yet, 
that the hope is that then that um, that accomplishment is durable, knowing that then my immune system has ostensibly learned not just to fight cancer, but to keep vigilant about it and to protect me from it in the future is is a real game changer. But in in some cases, the cancer returns. In other cases, people live cancer-free for the rest of their lives. Do we have any sense of why that is? We don't know that yet, but the the real difference, which Mary Elizabeth just um, alluded to, is that the responses to immunotherapy tend to be durable um, for years, as opposed to responses to other forms of anti-cancer therapy, which rarely have that form of durability. Um, and I think that's because we're we're weaponizing, uh, if you will, a, a living organ um, in the body to try and remember what the cancer looked like so that it can constantly be vigilant. The immune system remembers the vaccines that we get as babies and keeps us protected for decades. And so our hope is that now that Mary Elizabeth has been immunized against the melanoma in, we think, a meaningful way, that her immune system will constantly be on guard. And I, I cannot overstate the the psychological duress that so many of us who have experienced cancer go through with the fear of recurrence. And having experienced recurrence, it's it's a terror that that you're going to get that phone call again. And to feel that maybe now and the further and further away I get from it, and the hope that the can- that the treatment has worked the way it is supposed to, that that is not a fear for me anymore, and that that would be a fear for other cancer patients, um, is really extraordinary. Melanoma is skin cancer, and many people get it because they uh, did a little too much sunbathing when they were kids, exposed themselves uh, to it. Uh, did you blame yourself? Uh, it's funny. Jed and I were just talking about this before we came in. Um, I have worked very hard not to. I am a normal person who did not um, take extreme risks in her behavior other than being outside in the world. Um, And as a fair-skinned person, I actually wore sunscreen. Um, But I also, I think that we live in a culture where we we try so hard to figure out and explain why people get cancer that it can really turn into a very shaming and blaming process for people who get sick. And I think it's really important to distance ourselves from that and instead of saying, well, what did you do? Um, And by the same token, when people get better, not saying, well, you must have had a good attitude and you must have, you must be strong, and that people who've died have lost their battle. I think it's really important to just distance ourselves from that and say sometimes our cells rebel against us, and sometimes they work for us. Well, you've written melanoma makes more comebacks than share. <laughs> it's uh, it has a very very high recurrence rate, and that's what's exciting about immunotherapy is feeling that um, you know maybe maybe I'm done, at least with this one. Uh, Dr. Wilcher, uh Mary Elizabeth uh, was in a clinical trial, so she didn't have to pay, did she? But um, now that uh, if the FDA approves this treatment, uh, how much is this going to cost? Because some of these treatments run in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, don't they? Absolutely. These these medicines can be very expensive. Um, on the other hand, they, they cost a lot to develop. Um, the, there are some aspects to Mary Elizabeth's care that were not um, build for the, the medicines, which were considered experimental. But the standard aspects of a clinical trial, the routine blood tests to check for safety, the routine office visits, which she would have had regardless of whether she were in a trial or not, are um, billed to her insurance. And we explain this all very carefully to people before they agree to participate. Do you envision immunotherapy being used in combination with other treatments like radiation and chemotherapy? 
Yes, um, I do. In fact, we've begun to use immunotherapy along with radiation and have had some very successful examples of how to integrate this along with treatments that directly target the cancer, such as radiation or targeted therapies or even chemotherapy. There was a time in the past where people were told to think positively and that would help them uh, get through the cancer. And uh, then when they, it didn't work, they felt guilty that they hadn't been thinking positively enough. Do doctors still tell patients that sort of thing? I try not to tell people to do anything except to report to me <laughs> anything new and different that happens to them. I think that getting adjusted to a diagnosis is a very personal process. Um, I think what we can now offer with treatments such as this is the possibility of hope. The, the conversations that I have with patients now are very different than those that I had even five or ten years ago because of the enormous progress that's been made. Did you, uh, were you encouraged to think positively? Uh, I had some people tell me some really inane and unhelpful things <laughs> along the way. Uh, and what I have, uh, what I have learned along the way is, uh, you know, a positive attitude is great and love and support are amazing. And uh, I was very fortunate to um, become a member of Gilda's Club, which is a wonderful support organization for people with cancer. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of it just comes down to the science and and the science works on some people, and it doesn't work on others. And I have lost too many wonderful friends who thought positive thoughts and ate kale uh, that I just have to believe that there's there's a little more to it than, than staying on the sunny side. And I think everyone who experiences cancer needs to embrace that and understand that, that it's not our fault. They told you to, some people told you to change your diet. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Then that, you know, change your diet. And um, I'm not going to say some of the incredible quackery suggestions that have been given to me, but I've been, I've been given some crazy quackery suggestions and um, I really prefer science. But Dr. Walchuk, uh, the psychological uh, side can have an impact, can't it? If you think, uh, if, if, you are psychologically prepared to fight it, isn't that better than if you just fall into a deep depression, or does that not matter? No, I think it, it matters a lot. Um, and I think that patients who um, have a sense of hope and have a sense of positivity are, are more likely to em embark upon novel therapies, follow through with them, not, um, not stop them early when perhaps the benefit um, is not observed at, at an early you know, point in time. So I don't think there's any harm in having optimism at all. One of your friends, you say, Mary Elizabeth, uh, calls herself a veteran of cancer, not a survivor. I love, yeah, I love that phrase. I think that uh, I, I think that that sums it up so much better because, um, for as I said before, for so many of us, there is that lingering fear of of a return uh, that many of us have to live with. And I, I also think that survivor just almost sometimes makes it sound like it's just past and whatever. Even if I never have a recurrence, and I hope I don't. Um, I live with my cancer experience every single day. My cancer is part of my life now, and that is not past tense. That is very present. Dr. Walchuk, when do you think the FDA might approve the drug combination that Mary Elizabeth was on? Um, I don't know yet, uh, but because of the phase one trial that Mary Elizabeth participated in, we very quickly enrolled uh, phase two and phase three studies. We expect to have uh, data from those studies in the next two or three months, so hopefully soon. 
And and how many studies does it have to go through before the FDA even considers approving it? Well, so this is actually a, a moving target. Um, it's, you know, some of the most recent medicines that have been approved to treat melanoma, some of these immunotherapies were actually approved on phase one data because um, if the data is compelling, it doesn't matter that there was no placebo group. That's what we saw with HIV, AIDS, uh, where people didn't want to wait to go through all the, the different trials uh, because people were dying. And people are dying from melanoma and other cancers still, despite the fact that we know so much more today than we even knew 10 or 15 years ago. That's exactly right. And I think the, the, the pace of development of these medicines um, is also a source of hope, that, that patients are not waiting years and years to have access to things that have a very reasonable chance of helping. Because we don't have years and years to wait. I want to thank you so much for being part of the WMIC series called Living Cancer. And my great thanks to two of you for being on our show. We've been speaking with Dr. Jed Walchuk, who's chief of the Melanoma and Immunotherapeutics Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Mary Elizabeth Williams of Salon.com, who uh, is a what, what word cancer we veteran. Use? A cancer veteran. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you thank for you having us. for coming back from the wars to be on our show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Support for Living Cancer is provided by the Susan and Peter Solomon Family Foundation. Additional funding for WNYC's medical science reporting is provided by the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation.